your Bibles with you. We are going to be in, um, well, we're going to be in a lot of different places, but if you want to turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28, that's going to be where we're going to start out today. I told Tony this morning, I feel like I'm like way over here on an island by myself, but he said, this is where the light's good, so I'll try to, try to stay in this spot. As Cody mentioned, he stole my, uh, my joke this morning, so, you know, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, this is a great time, you know, we're all preparing this week to gather together with friends and family and celebrate Thanksgiving, and it's just a time where we focus and reflect on all the things that we're thankful for, and I would imagine in a lot of churches around the world today, there, there's a lot of sermons being preached about thankfulness and Thanksgiving and, and having a thankful heart, and but you guys, you come to the journey, and so you know how we do holidays around here. We just kind of keep going wherever the preaching schedule ends up being. And so this week, uh, we're in our foundation series, and the sermon on the docket was, Who is Satan? And it actually worked out well because in a lot of ways this is, like Cody mentioned, going to be um, kind of supplemental to what we talked about last week from Mark. So you, would, you, know, you, might, you might think, well, maybe we have a a God who's sovereign over all these things, right? And he puts us exactly where we need to be. Um, but, you know, when we talk about Satan, this is an important topic really for us to talk about. I mean, it's, it's probably not something that's going to fill the pews in a lot of churches, right? It's not something that we typically like to spend a lot of time talking about. It's not something that makes us feel good. I mean, we like to come to church. We like to be uplifted. We like to feel good, don't we? And this isn't something, this isn't that type of topic. But it's an important topic because... We have a very real, a very tangible enemy. You know, all around us, there's a battles being waged in the spiritual realm, things that we don't even see, things that are going on outside of our perception. And there's a very real enemy that we have in Satan. And so it's an important topic for us to know and to understand. The name Satan comes from the Hebrew word satan, which actually means adversary. So the, the name for Satan actually means adversary. He is our enemy. We also use the term devil. That's used oftentimes in the scriptures. That's the Greek word diablos, which means accuser, somebody who accuses us, somebody who stands against us, slanderer, somebody who slanders us, right? He speaks things that are untrue. We also sometimes hear the word Lucifer, the name Lucifer, Used for Satan. This comes from Isaiah chapter 14 in a section of passage, a passage of scripture that's oftentimes viewed by interpreters and biblical scholars and Christian uh, teachers as an allegorical reference for Satan himself. It means light bearing or morning or day star, which is kind of a strange name, and we'll get into some of the meat and potatoes about why that might apply to Satan. But like I said, this is an important topic for us to understand. Genesis 4, 7 says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to or, or towards you or, or for you or against you, and you must rule over it. So the Bible teaches us that sin is creeping at our door. It desires to devour us. It desires to consume our lives. It wants to control us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Again, Scripture wants us to understand that, that our enemy, that Satan, is an apex predator, right? 
He knows how to hunt for his prey. He desires to kill and consume. And the ancient Chinese general and philosopher Sun Tzu said, Know thy enemy and know thyself in a hundred battles. You will never be defeated. Right? So the, the wisdom there is that if we know our enemies and we know ourselves, we're in a position to be able to fight effectively, right? If we know our adversary, then we can fight effectively against the wages of sin in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I actually want to cover four topics for us today in our time together. The first thing I want to cover is the original sin, that is the origin of evil in the, in the universe itself. That's a, that's a good question, right? Secondly, I want to talk about God's sovereignty over Satan's power. It's important for us to recognize that God is in authority over all things. And that's uh, uplifting and encouraging to us when we talk about things like Satan. The third thing I want to talk about is Satan's rule over a fallen world. And the fourth thing that we're going to cover today is the reality of an eternal hell. So a lot, of, a lot of fun things on the docket today, but we're going to dig right into them. I think the first thing that we need to understand is that the Bible is mostly and in many ways silent about, uh, on a number of important questions that we have concerning Satan, right? That there's a lot of things that the Bible, that God in his wisdom has chosen not to reveal to us when it comes to Satan and when it comes to evil. Some critics of our faith have, have pointed to these things as as ways for us to, or evidence that, you know, that our modern understanding of things has surpassed what the Bible has to offer for us. Our modern understanding of who Satan is is not really rooted in Scripture, but in a lot of ways it's rooted in our um, human imaginings, right? They would want us to believe that maybe that Satan's not really real, that it's a, a tool that Christians have developed to be able to scare us into to following after what, uh, what Christians teach, right? Many people today, even those inside of the church, reject the idea of Satan and hell altogether. That's a scary proposition, isn't it? That many people, that in, in, even in, within the church, reject the idea of, 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 a, of Satan, of hell, of these types of things. How does the, the power of the gospel hold any weight if we don't understand what we've been saved from, Right? This is problematic for a number of other reasons as well, primarily because Jesus himself interacts with and references Satan in numerous occasions. We just looked at it last week in his temptation in the wilderness where he interacts with Satan. And why is it problematic then? Well, if we cast shadow of doubt on any portion of scripture, then we call all of it into question, don't we? Right? We like to have this idea that we can pick and choose what we like from the scriptures, that we can choose those things that make us feel good and we can hold on to them and we can reject the things that we don't like. But when, like I said, when we cast a shadow of a doubt on any piece of scripture, then we lose all assurance of its truthfulness, don't we? The most fruitful Christian is one who has reconciled their hearts and their minds to the full counsel of God. And that doesn't mean that we don't have questions, that we don't still struggle with doubts sometimes, that there aren't things that we don't understand, but it just means that we rest and trust in knowing that God's word is true, that it's trustworthy, that it can be counted on, right? 
Oftentimes, when we talk about understanding Scripture, it's important for us to under, under, understand that we need to look at the things in Scripture that are unclear and view them through the lens of the things that are abundantly clear. There's a lot of things that the Scriptures teach us very clearly. And so when we encounter things like some of the things we're going to talk about today, where there's just not a lot of, of clear teaching within Scripture, we just understand those things through the lens of the things that are clear. So what we do know, though, is that Satan, like everyone and everything else, is a created being, right? And that's important for us to understand because as a created being, that means that he falls under the authority of his creator. He falls under the authority of God. All things that are created fall under the authority of God. There is only one eternal being in existence, and that is God. He is eternal, uncreated. Everything else that exists finds its substance and its existence in God. God is the creator of all things. I want to stick a pin in that because we're going to come back to it shortly, but it's a really important thing for us to understand. It also means that Satan, as a created being, was created good and morally pure. Again, this is important for us to understand because God is perfect Everything that he does is good. Everything he creates is good. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. There is no sin or no flaw or blemish in God. Everything that he does is good, which means Satan was created good. He was at one point morally pure and chose to disobey God. Listen to what Psalm 145:17 says. It says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So Christian tradition typically understands Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19 as an allegory. That's just a story that has um, like a hidden or symbolic or double meaning in it. So if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, it's titled uh, an, an oracle against the king of Tyre, which is an ancient kingdom. And so it, it has a very real meaning in that it is words spoken by God through the prophet against the king of Tyre. But oftentimes we understand this story to also be um, this secondary symbolic meaning where it's talking about Satan. So that's where we're going to start our time here today. I'm going to read it for us in its entirety. Ezekiel chapter 28, starting in verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. If this is true, then, and this is actually also telling us a story about the origins of Satan himself, then, then what we learn here is that he was um, uh, created a cherub, which is one of the highest orders of angels. He was, he was um, created to have even some authority over angels. He was and perhaps still is a creature of great beauty, right? We know um, from, from throughout the scriptures that, that angels are, are not little babies in diapers with wings, but they are, are majestic creatures, right? When people experience or, or interact with angels, they typically fall down on their face in fear and worship because they are majestic and scary and terrifying all at the same time. This would seem to correspond with, with things that we see throughout Scripture, like Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he writes, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of, of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And again, we see in Jude chapter 1, uh, verse 6, he says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, this is God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we see maybe that perhaps that, that Paul and Jude also confirm what, uh, what we believe about the, the chapter in Ezekiel, that, he, that Satan began as an angel, that he sinned against God at some point and was cast out of heaven as an enemy of God. And of course we see then that the, the root of Satan's sin, like that of all sin, was found in the pridefulness of his heart, Right? The origin of all sin is the pride of, the, of our hearts, isn't it? I mean, if we look at any sin, we can trace it back to the pride of the heart. That we think that we know more than God, that, that we think that God is withholding something good from us, that there's something better for us out there, and, and we, that we know more than God, right? It's the pride of our hearts that leads to the fall. So although the Bible doesn't give us an origin story for Satan, if you will, we can rightly infer that he wasn't always evil, but rather that he chose at some point to disobey God. So this leads us to the first question for today. Where did evil come from? All right, where did this evil desire in the heart of Satan come from that led him to fall into sin? Within the Christian faith, we have what we call the doctrine of original sin. And that name is a little bit misleading because it doesn't actually speak to the origin of sin per se, but rather it talks about the effects of Adam's first sin in the garden and how that has, has impacted and continues to impact the human heart still today. 
And so what we know from the scriptures and what we believe and what we have um, codified in the doctrine of original sin is that because of Adam's sin, all men are created with a sinful nature. That means that, that if, the nature, if our nature is, is, is what rules over our desires and our desires rule over what we do, then our greatest desire in our hearts is to disobey God, to flee from God, to do the things that oppose God. That Adam's sin disfigured the image of God that we bear in, in such a way that we now can't in and of ourselves reconcile ourselves to God, that we can't choose obedience to God, but rather everything in us desires to do that which is contrary to God. We touched on this during our discussion of mankind and, and of sin, but of way of a refresher, our most natural inclination is for sinfulness. It's the default, default position, if you will. We see this in passages like Psalm 51 and Paul's argument in Romans 5 that Adam's sin is, has led to all men being counted as sinful. And, Rome, and Psalm 51 talks about us being brought forth from our mother's womb in iniquity. You see, you are, you've heard me say this before, and you'll hear me say it again, you are not a sinner I'm sorry, you, do, you, you are not a sinner because you sin, rather you sin because you are a sinner. I fumbled over that, let me get that out again. You are not a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you are a sinner, right? So the action doesn't lead to the condition of the heart, rather the condition of the heart leads to the action. The Bible clearly tells us how sin entered into our world and how it has disfigured us as creatures created in the image of God. But you might be surprised to learn that the Bible doesn't actually speak to us about the origin of evil in the universe. Right? We know how sin came into this world, but we don't know how sin came into being. See, the Bible starts with sin already existing and unexplained. We see this in the, in the creation narrative, right? The serpent appears in the garden to tempt Eve. We see that, that the serpent is Satan, right? And so he's already there. He's already chosen to fall into sin, and he's there to now try to tempt this new creation into sin as well. The origin of evil is left by God in the realm of mystery. And what we can see clearly in the scriptures, though, is that that it is not Adam, but rather Satan, who is the father of sin. Listen to Jesus' indictment of Satan in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So again, it's Satan that appears to Adam and Eve as the serpent in the garden to tempt them. So clearly we see that Satan has given himself over to sin before Adam and Eve ever take that step themselves. The question that we're left with then is, how did a creature like Satan, who was created good and morally pure by a sovereign God, first receive the desire for evil and unrighteousness, right? If our, if our actions flow out of our desires, where did that initial desire come from? John Piper refers to this question as one of the great mysteries of his theology. 
The hard truth that we need to understand is that we don't really know, right? God has chosen not to speak clearly to us about that. He's chosen to, to leave it in the realm of mystery. In his goodness and his wisdom, he has chosen not to reveal that to us. Some see questions like this as a cause to distrust God, to distrust the scriptures, to distrust the Christian faith. They say it proves that it can't hold water, right? That there's all these holes within the, 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 the gospel and the scriptures. It can't hold any water. And that those who choose to believe so either do so out of some willingness to hold on to something that's nonsensical or because they're foolish or maybe they're just too weak to think for themselves or maybe they just want it to be true so bad that they're willing to look past all of these holes, right? But I don't think that's the case at all. You see, my conviction and assurance of my faith doesn't come from having all of the answers but rather it comes from having the most important ones. I don't need to know every detail about the origin of sin to be able to look at the world around me and to even to be able to look at my own life and see the plague that it is. I can see its effects all around me. I can see them every time I look in the mirror, right? I don't need to know all the answers to be able to see clearly that it exists, that it's real, that it's a threat, and in light of that reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers me hope that is both compelling and reasonable. It appeals to both my heart and my mind. What the Bible is clear on, though, is that God is sovereign over both the person and the work of Satan in this world. You see, I believe that much of, of our thinking about Satan and much of the teaching about Satan that we experience uh, and even within the church today, leads us into the realm of dualism. And the, and the idea of dualism is basically like that God is, is good. He, God, there's the power of good that's represented by God, and there's the power of evil that's represented by Satan, and that the two are equally powerful and locked in this cosmic warfare that will go on forever. Sometimes God gets the other hand, upper hand, sometimes Satan gets the upper hand, but at the end of the day, they're so evenly matched, they both just, it, the battle will never be determined fully, right? They're, they're just both opposite sides of the same coin. But this is far from the picture of God and Satan that we see in the scriptures. Look at, at the story of Job. Satan is summoned to come before God and to give an account for his actions in the world. And he must seek God's permission to, to afflict Job. Additionally, God sets boundaries on what Satan can and cannot do to Job. We see it in the Gospels where Satan and demonic forces recognize Jesus' authority when he casts them out or when, they, they, when he encounters them. They recognize and, and obey his authority. And we see this in the book of Revelation in numerous occasions, but where we see Satan described as being bound by God. These are just a few examples of the scriptural perspective on Satan's relationship to God. Satan is not the Lex Luthor to God's Superman. He's not the Darth Vader to God's Luke Skywalker. I know, I'm sorry, Ben's not here. He missed that one, but, right? But, but rather, God alone is sovereign over the entirety of creation. 
All things bow to the authority of God, including Satan. So there is nothing that Satan can do apart from God's ultimate authority. The burning question then is, does this then make God the author or ultimately responsible for Satan's evil works? Of course, we would have to say no, right? We already talked about it. Nothing that is unpure flows forth from God. The tension in the scriptures between God between God's sovereignty and human and satanic responsibility is real. And how the two simultaneously interact with one another is a great mystery. It's not immediately obvious to us. John MacArthur in his book, None Other Discovering the Bible, the God of the Bible, says the first step in understanding the compatibility between God's sovereignty and human will is to recognize that they are not mutually exclusive. And scripture makes this absolutely clear. In God's design, human responsibility, and this can also be true of satanic responsibility, is clearly not eliminated by God's sovereign control over his creation. That's true even though evil was included in his grand design for the universe even before the beginning of time. And he uses his creature's sin for purposes that are always and only good. Indeed, in his infinite wisdom, he is able to use all things for good. And that's a reference to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. So how should we think about and understand God's sovereignty as it relates to Satan's activity and the existence of evil? I think there's basically four truths that we must affirm when we want to look for, that in turn kind of form the basis for how we should understand this. Number one is that God is completely sovereign and works all things according to the purpose of his will. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It means that everything that happens in the world, in our lifetimes, everything that occurs happens only because it is the will of God. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by accident. All things happen according to the will of God. When God said, let there be light, he unfurled before the creation the entire history of human, of human history, right? He unfurled the scroll when he said, let there be light. Everything that has or will happen happens according to the will of God. The second thing that we see is that all that God does is good and there is no evil in him. We already looked at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 that affirms that for us. The third thing that we see is that God in his power and sovereignty is completely able to restrain and even prevent that which is evil from happening. Again, nothing happens that doesn't pass through the the good and wise hands of God. He can prevent anything that he wants from happening. Nothing happens by accident. And number four, and this is kind of the summary of all of it, for evil to exist, it is according to to God's good and wise purposes and ultimately serves that end. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. It really is. But if we surmise all of the teaching of Scripture, it's the truth that we come to. So even in his prideful disobedience of God, Satan ultimately accomplishes God's good purposes through his sinful activity in the world. That is Satan's sinful activity in the world. That God... Satan means it for evil, right? Sin is meant for evil, to be contrary to God, but even those sinful things God can use for his purposes. 
We see examples of this play out time and time again in the scriptures. We see it in the story of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt so that ultimately he's able to provide for and save the nation of Israel. He says in in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, speaking to his brothers that that sold him into, into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We see it again in the Babylonian conquest and captivity of the nation of Israel. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So what the prophet is saying there is that that God is using an ungodly nation like Assyria to judge his people Israel, his nation Israel, for their wickedness. But he even in doing that pronounces judgment against Assyria. He says, woe to you, Assyria, right? He's already pronouncing judgment against them, even though they're accomplishing his purposes, And Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion is perhaps the most abundant or clear uh, example of this we see in the scriptures. Listen to what Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let me read that again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All of these stories, right, they all point to this ultimate truth that that God is using evil, sinful actions by, by men and Satan to ultimately accomplish his good purposes. But if Satan is only able to do that which God allows him to do, then what does it mean when the Bible calls Satan things like the ruler of this world? We see this time and time again references in Scripture to Satan as, as an authoritative figure over this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. John chapter 12, verse 31 calls him the ruler of this world. 2 Timothy 2.26 says the knowledge of the truth helps us to come to our senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So what then is Satan's power and authority? And how does he exercise that authority? Well, we saw it last week when we looked at the temptation of Jesus, right? Look at the story, the, the, that version of that narrative from Luke chapter 4. He says, and the devil took him, this is, this is Jesus, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. I think there's two important details that we see there in that passage that kind of lead us into a a biblical or a a healthy understanding of how this works. 
the first thing that we see there is that there is some truth in what Satan is saying. See, the most effective lie is, is one that, that's just a, a slight disfigurement of, of things that are true, right? Just enough to make it believable. If Jesus, God incarnate, were to bow in worship to Satan, in submission and worship to Satan, then he would have ceased to be God, right? If God bows down to anyone else, then that thing is ultimately God. But we know that that didn't happen, that, that couldn't happen, right? That would be Jesus abdicating his throne. God is the highest authority in the universe and bows in worship to nothing and no one. But you see, Satan tips his hand here, doesn't he? Notice that he says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Why? For it has been delivered to me. In other words, any authority that Satan has is only because God has allowed him to have it. God has given him this authority. Jesus makes this same point in his upper room discourse in John chapter 14. He says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Peter may have referred as Satan, to Satan as a prowling lion, but he is a lion in a cage. Right? His influence, his impact, his authority only extends as far as God allows. He's a big mean dog, but he's a dog on a leash. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be on guard against Satan and his schemes to deceive us. Again, my good friend John Piper, he says, in his, in his sovereignty, God considered it wise as part of his curse on the world after the fall of Adam and Eve to give Satan a huge power in this world. But he doesn't have ultimate power. God is God, not Satan. Satan's not God. All Satan's power is by permission he has no authority to do, or I'm sorry, no autonomy to do anything God does not permit for infinitely wise purposes. All his acts of opposition to God and God's people are part of God's plan as he gives Satan permission to exercise tremendous power in this world. So it is true that Satan has a lot of power. He has a lot of influence. He is at work all around us. He was formerly at work in our lives as Christians, right? It, it says that we were transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light in the book of Colossians. As believers, we must recognize that Satan's power and hold on this world has been delivered a death blow in the cross of Christ, though, right? That Christ upon the cross delivered the final death blow to Satan's authority. You see, Satan has no dominion over the lives of believers unless we choose to give it to him. Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, in certain there, nor demons, nor Satan, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the assurance and the hope of the gospel. That Satan has no dominion over those who have been united with Christ. In calling us unto himself and uniting his life to ours, Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin and evil in our lives. And Satan's dominion over our lives. We've been set free from that bondage. But this is not the reality for those who remain separated from Christ. See, I would be remiss if I spoke to you this morning about Satan without talking about the reality of hell. To many, you know, our modern sensibilities, they, they, they suggest to us that the idea of hell is antiquated. That there's no space in our, with our modern sensibilities that we've gotten so smart we can see through this false narrative. There's no reason for us to be afraid of hell. We've surpassed that. It's this tool, like I mentioned, that, that these foolish Christians use to scare you into to trying to follow after what they're teaching you so that you'll believe in fairy tales too, right? That's what the world wants us to think. I think that in many ways, removing our perception of the reality of hell and replacing a healthy fear of this reality with contempt and mockery has perhaps been Satan's greatest work of evil and deception against mankind. Even those who are open to the idea of God, even many within the modern church bristle against the idea of hell, of this place of eternal suffering and wrath. Surely we say no good and loving God could allow such a horrible horror to exist, right? The problem is that we just fail to recognize the depths of our sin and what an affront our sin truly is to God. We have this high view of mankind, this high view of ourselves, and a low view of God. In our churches, we shouldn't celebrate the reality of hell for sure, right? We shouldn't celebrate it, but we do, not, we do no honor to God nor our fellow man when we just ignore it when we act like it's not a reality, when we act like it's not there, when we act like the threat isn't real. We don't honor God and we don't, definitely don't honor our fellow man. I'm not a proponent of scare tactic evangelism, right? Like you don't, you don't want to go to hell, right? Matt Chandler, this quote was attributed to Matt Chandler when I researched it, but I'm sure he got it from somebody else. But he says, heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell it's a place for those who love God, right? We shouldn't run to the gospel simply because we're afraid of hell, but rather we should run to and hold on to the gospel because of our love for God. I think it's important, though, that we all recognize that hell is a very real reality for those who have not been reconciled to God through faith, by grace, in Christ. This should drive us 
to fervently share the gospel with anyone and everyone. We don't know who God wants to save, and it's not our job to save anyone. We don't have the power to save anyone, but it is our job. We have been called by Christ to be his hands and feet, to share the good news of his gospel with anyone and everyone who will listen. So what exactly is hell? If you recall from our lesson on heaven, we said that heaven is the place where the presence of God is most fully manifest. It's where his beauty, his majesty, his holiness, all of these things are most fully manifest. So to that end, I would say that hell would be the place where the wrath of God is most fully manifest. You might have heard of hell described as the complete and total absence of God. I've been guilty myself of teaching about hell that way. But the more I've learned, I think that's not really doctrinally or scripturally true. You see, God is omnipresent, which means he exists at all places at once. Likewise, he sustains all aspects of reality, of creation, by his power. Nothing can exist apart from God's um, power and, and his sustaining power in keeping it in existence. He's the source of all being and existence. And existence. So God cannot be completely absent from hell or else hell could not exist. See, moreover, hell is not the kingdom of Satan that we see in the movies, right? It's not where Satan sits upon a throne where he enjoys um, tormenting and torturing those who have rejected God. It's, it's the place of where God exercises his judgment against sin, even against Satan and the demons. We see many references to hell in the scriptures. Jesus often refers to it as a place of darkness, of weeping or suffering and sorrow and the gnashing of teeth. Again, suffering. In Revelation, during the narrative of the final judgment, we see that hell is described as a lake of fire where all those who are, have been judged, those whose names are not written in the book of life, are cast into. This is the fate, we are told, of Satan as well, where they're cast into the lake of fire, where they die a second death. So all people will be resurrected into bodily form and will stand in judgment before God. Those who have been united with Christ will be judged according to the works of Christ. Those who are not united to Christ, those who have rejected the gospel, will be judged according to their works and they will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will die physically a second time. We, we see this in, in the book of Revelation chapter 20. We oftentimes look at the amount of pain and suffering that we see in the world around us and we think that things could not be much worse, right? Like this is, it can't be any worse than this, right? We look at the suffering around us, the things, the awful things that people do to one another and we think it couldn't be worse than this, but this is so far from the truth. In his grace, mercy, and long-suffering patience towards all men, God has seen fit to restrain much of the pain, suffering, evil, and his judgment against mankind. It could be so much worse were God not to continue to tarry with us. This is not the case with hell, though. Despite the ugliness of the cross, in his own divine power, Christ in many ways veiled the true power of God's wrath. 
If Jesus were just a mere mortal man, he couldn't have bore the weight of the wrath of God that was cast upon him on the cross. Though his human body physically failed, his spirit triumphed. He overcame death and sin upon the cross. But this is not, the, not so for those who will experience hell. Another common, common misconception is that hell is a temporary suffering, right? That, that for a period of time, as awful as that suffering of hell may be, that God will eventually relent and just in his mercy destroy those who are in hell. Just wipe them from existence entirely. Again, this belief is rooted in the imaginings of man and not in the scriptures. The suffering of hell is eternal. God does not, indeed, he cannot relent from his punishment of sin to the utmost. He will pour out his wrath for eternity against the sinfulness of mankind, against the sinfulness of Satan and his legion of demons. The reality of hell should rightly and simultaneously create in us as believers a sense of great dread and overwhelming joy. Why do I say that? Well, I think on the one hand, we just cannot even begin to imagine what an eternity of fellowship with our Lord and Savior will be like for us. And, and we also should not be able to imagine what a lifetime, an eternity of suffering the wrath of God should be like for those who are not reconciling Christ, who remain lost. This should fuel an overwhelming conviction to herald the good news of the gospel, shouldn't it? In everything that we do, we should be heralding the truth of the gospel. True indeed, we cannot save anyone. We don't have the power to save anyone. But God has chosen, Christ has chosen to use his church as his hands and feet to be the, the messengers for his good news, right? We call the gospel good news because it is good news, but news has to be told, right? We have to herald the gospel. We have to tell people about it for them to be able to respond. But likewise, the reality of hell should cause us to rejoice in the measure of grace upon grace that we have been given through Christ. We don't need to be afraid of the reality of hell in our lives anymore, those of us who have been reconciled to Christ. We have been saved from that, that destination, that eternity, and we get to enjoy fellowship with Christ forever. The powers of evil have no hold on our lives anymore. We have been set free. We've been set free from the condemnation of sin. We've been given a new identity and a new life in Christ to be enjoyed in praise and fellowship with him for eternity, for our good, and for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just pray that you would um, just really put a weight and a burden in our hearts today, Lord. That, that so often, I know myself, I have to repent because I know myself, I'm guilty of neglecting to, to think about the reality of hell. That I've been given this gift and it's such a good gift that I should desire to share it with everybody that I meet. And yet oftentimes I'm guilty of, of just keeping it for myself. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts this morning for those that are lost. That you would bear that weight upon us to, to realize the eternity that waits. That Satan wants to pull them into this, this dark, 
this deep dark. He wants to blind them from what is true, just as we were once blinded from what is true. Lord, he wants to keep as many in darkness with him as possible. Lord, he's a very real enemy that seeks to destroy. And Lord, may we be your hands and feet. May we be obedient to your great commission. May we be fervently sharing the gospel in the hopes of making disciples, Lord. Just pray that you would be glorified and honored in all that we do, Lord. And just pray that you would help us to understand, by the power of your spirit, these difficult truths of your word. We ask these things in your most beautiful name.